It is estimated that more than 50 million people worldwide are living with dementia, and this number is expected to increase rapidly to more than 131 million by the year 2050. As aging services professionals, it is important to implement evidence-based strategies that will enhance the quality of life for individuals who are under our care and provide training and resources to ensure the best care possible. Person-Centered Dementia Care gives a holistic and integrative approach to maintain well-being and quality of life for people with dementia. Hello and welcome to the Comfort Connections podcast. In this episode, Strategies for Implementing Person-Centered Dementia Care, we are joined by a panel of aging services professionals. Panelists include Heather McKay from Partnerships for Health, Colleen Toby from Pathway Health, Stephanie Wurzbeka from Comfort Care Franchise Systems. Let's listen in as they share insights, resources, and best practice strategies to implement person-centered dementia care. Well, hello and welcome to the presentation, Strategies for Implementing Person-Centered Dementia Care. I would now like to turn over the presentation to Heather to give us a dementia overview. I thought I would set the stage with just a little bit of, uh, of terminology and background. I bet many of us on the line are used to uh, explaining some of these words to people, friends, and families in our practice who don't have all the healthcare education that we do. And so some pocket explanations can really be helpful. Just to set the stage, we're talking about dementia a brain disease impacting memory and other areas of the brain severe enough to interfere with everyday life. If the the brain changes don't rise to that severity of impacting everyday routines and, and, um, and activities, then the diagnosis wouldn't rise to dementia, maybe called mild cognitive impairment in those cases. Well, when we're talking about dementia, I don't, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I hear families and friends saying, what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? Well, I like to explain it this way. Dementia is an umbrella term, and my hands just automatically go up when I say that. But here's what just really gets heads nodding at the kitchen table talks that I'm in uh, almost every week. When I say dementia is a word like cancer, it really connects with some terminology that most people already know. See, they know that cancer is an umbrella term and they know that underneath that umbrella, there are many different types, skin cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, (laughs) the list goes on. And it's also common knowledge that skin cancer is different from lung cancer, but they're both cancer. It's so helpful when I can explain the connection that the dementia terminology works the same way. See, dementia is the word up top, while there are many different types of dementia under that umbrella. Now it makes more sense when I say Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia are all different diseases, but they're all dementia. Well, Alzheimer's disease, as we know on the call, is still in the leading uh, position as the number one most common type of dementia with vascular dementia coming in um, a close second. Thank you so much for clearing up the terminology, Heather. I would imagine as the United States population ages, more and more families and professionals are supporting people living with dementia. What can you tell us about dementia caregiving? Yeah, you're right, 
So, I mean, dementia caregiving is really a growing concern nationwide. Um, in my consulting uh, practice, I meet with families every week who say, wow, like we didn't expect to be in this situation. And I'm finding that I'm often sharing information that families haven't heard before, sometimes even clearing up or dispelling some myths about who's doing dementia care in our country. For example, one of those myths is that people with dementia all move to special care facilities. That's not true. In fact, the majority, 80% of people with dementia live in their homes. Another myth is that professional caregivers are just abundant and affordable and conveniently available day or night. When in fact, these older adults are usually cared for by family members and friends. Actually today, more than 11 million Americans lend support to someone living with dementia. In 2022, just last year, these families and friends and neighbors provided an estimated 18 billion hours of unpaid assistance. Now that would be a contribution valued, get this, at over 330 billion, with a B, dollars. That's according to the Alzheimer's Association. And it's approximately 59% of the net value of Walmart's total revenue in the same year. <laughs> One more interesting statistic, would you believe that that unpaid help given by family members would equal more than 14 times the total money McDonald's made in the same year. So I always think, goodness, that is an army of family caregivers, huh? Wondering who are these families and friends that we often see referred to as informal caregivers in the literature. And I always think of them as heroes. Well, approximately, Two-thirds of those dementia caregivers are women. Over half of the primary caregivers are grown children. Now, see, that's another assumption. Lots of folks might think that an older spouse will assume the primary caregiver role, but it's not realistic. Only about 10% of primary caregivers are spouses. And by the way, I always like to just give a little heads up. Being that sole caregiver for a spouse in older age is a risky proposition for the older caregiver, and it's usually not by choice. That risky scenario is more common actually for folks who might be isolated because of social stigma or just have a diminished social network because there's no family or friends um, available there. Those solo caregivers are really particularly vulnerable. But over half, of primary caregivers live with the person with dementia in the community. So what that says to me is a whole lot of grown children are combining their household with an aging parent. Let me give you a few more statistics. Over 60% of caregivers are married or in a long-term relationship. What that says to me is they've got more than one important person in their life to think about. Approximately a quarter of those dementia caregivers are what we call sandwich generation caregivers. That means that they're caring for an aging parent while also taking care of at least one child. About 30% of those caregivers are age 65 or older. So we can think to ourselves, many of those grown children are seniors themselves. Well, thinking about the younger caregivers of all the youngest caregivers in the country, these are folks 
between the age 18 and 49. I think about these folks as people who probably need to hold down another job while they're caregiving. What 20% of them are caring for someone with dementia. And that's up since 2015. Few more statistics. Uh, many caregivers are lending their help with an already tight budget of their own. I bet a lot of heads are nodding on the call today. You've got experience with this. 41% of caregivers have a household income of 50,000 or less. And their ability is largely dependent on their own health. Over half of caregivers indicate that a decline in their own health would compromise their ability to support somebody else. Wow, Heather, hats off to anyone that is dutifully stepping into that role of caregiver while they're juggling other important roles and looking into their own health at the same time. So as professionals that are on the call today, we know that all families need and deserve help on that journey. So how is the state of the dementia care workforce in light of this exploding need? Yeah, you've got that right. I mean, everybody on the call who has knowledge of dementia and is dedicated to person-centered care is a really valuable resource. I've got to say thanks to everybody for your service. It takes all of us supporting individuals with dementia to live life to the fullest and to help those family members step into the role of caregiver, I say, without sacrificing their own health in the process. We're all part of this substantial Dementia care workforce, as Sue mentioned. We're involved in every stage of the disease. Honestly, I like to say it'd be nice if we could clone ourselves. But the workforce includes primary care physicians and specialists, such as geriatricians, neurologists, psychiatrists, other licensed providers, such as nurses like Colleen, psychologists, therapists like me, and social workers. But as many families will tell you, among the most vital members of the team are direct care workers. Now, these teammates are formally classified as personal care aides, home health aides, nursing assistants, but they might actually have titles, a wide range of titles that you, you notice in the field, like associate or care partner. The largest segment of the dementia workforce is that army of direct care workers. They're needed literally everywhere. Direct care workers are helping people with dementia and their families in private homes, in community-based settings, like adult day services. They're in residential care places, like assisted living facilities and skilled nursing facilities, and in the hospital. Well, across all these settings, direct care workers deliver the majority of day-to-day -day care to patients, clients, or residents, and that is care that impacts the well-being of both the person with dementia and their family. So you can probably imagine with the aging population, as you mentioned, the demand for dementia-capable direct care workforces is skyrocketing. An estimated 1.2 million additional direct care workers are gonna be needed in just the next decade. And that, that starts immediately. <laughs> That's more new workers than any other single occupation in the United States. And this job growth is occurring primarily among personal care aides and home health aides. And that really reflects an overwhelming preference that older adults have to age in place, as well as some public policies that have expanded access to home and community-based services. 
Wow. Given the number of families that are dealing with dementia and the wide range of professional caregivers that are involved in their care, it sure seems that almost everyone could be impacted by dementia, whether it's directly or indirectly in the near future. Some people may be wondering what's different about dementia caregiving compared to other types of caregiving. Can you help us to appreciate what's special about this type of caregiving? Ah, yes. Okay, we're putting our finger on it here. Along with those who need dementia care and who provides it, we, we also know some things about the role itself. Turns out dementia caregiving is different from other types of caregiving. So let's put some statistics around this. For example, dementia caregiving is more physically and emotionally demanding. Now, I, I've got to say this. It's not to say that child care or assisting someone with another condition is easy. Caregiving comes with challenges in all forms, but 65% of dementia caregivers provide the most difficult kinds of personal care, like assisting with bathing or meals or dealing with incontinence. And these are tasks that can be even harder to do with someone with dementia when they're confused or disoriented or just less able to help uh, or assist in the activity. A couple other things about dementia caregiving. It's more time consuming. These caregivers spend more hours a week providing care than do other caregivers. Nearly one in, a, one in four provide what a recent survey defined as constant care. That means they're doing 40 hours a week or more. A few other things, dementia caregiving takes more people. Well, individuals with dementia living in the community are more likely than other adults without dementia to rely on multiple unpaid caregivers, often multiple family caregivers. In fact, 30% of older adults with dementia rely on three or more unpaid caregivers, whereas only about 23% of older adults without dementia need that many helpers. Dementia caregiving is about a lot more than activities of daily living, though. Many folks on the call today know that these caregivers face special challenges that arise from their loved one's brain changes. The majority of people living with dementia will experience challenging behavioral symptoms at some point during their disease. It's not the exception. It's actually the rule. Behaviors like irritability, apathy, depression, delusions, wandering, <laughs> The list goes on. You can, you can really rattle them off, sleep and appetite changes. Well, in addition to managing behavioral symptoms, dementia caregivers are addressing ba basic health needs, and they're really struggling to negotiate this whole care system more than other caregivers who are, whose loved ones might actually be able to communicate and advocate better for themselves. I don't know about any of you on the call, but if you've ever taken someone with dementia to the dentist, you know what I mean about regular health care becoming a challenge. Dementia caregiving lasts longer than other types of caregiving. About 86% are providing care for more than one year, and over half are in this role for five years or longer. It takes a heavier toll on work and family life than other types of caregiving. In one study, Two-thirds of dementia caregivers missed work because of their caregiving responsibilities. And I mean, it had other impacts too. About 14% gave up work entirely 
or chose early retirement. Additionally, dementia caregiving impacts family relationships. Now, if any of you are also family caregivers on the line today, you'll back me up on this one. Family relationships change when dementia care you know, enters the picture. Caregiving intensifies regardless of your living situation. As I mentioned, those adult children are most often the primary caregiver, even when a spouse is present. And most of the caregivers, not the primary caregiver, but most of those family caregivers don't live with the person with dementia, but they still provide a great deal of support, even if their loved one is in a separate house or residential facility. That might be happening to some of you on the line. And dementia caregiving can limit a caregiver's ability to take care of themselves. As we've said, these family caregivers are at greater risk for anxiety, depression, poor quality of life than other types of caregivers. But when I rattle all this off, Sue, I mean, it's, I've got to say, it's not all doom and gloom. Because look, while I acknowledge that this is one of our country's biggest concerns, and I, I refuse to ignore these families' real struggles, but there is some indication that families are navigating dementia care challenges a little better than in the past. I like to think that some experience may be paying off. One study compared dementia caregivers in 1999 with dementia caregivers in 2015. Well, in that little 16-year period, caregivers were significantly less likely to report physical and financial strain related to their caregiving role. It was some good news. It wasn't easy, but it wasn't as challenging as it used to be. Also in that time, dementia caregivers used a substantially more um, uh, respite care services. That's interesting, Heather. I noticed that improvement over time was reported before the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, it's a, it's a good catch. I'm not really ready to call this steady improvement. Um, especially after these recent service strains families and professionals felt during COVID. Um, we are in the midst of a steep spike in the number of families dealing with dementia, and the need for quality dementia care is only going up as families feel the financial squeeze, and healthcare system contends with really an urgent demand for direct care workers. So that's the landscape. Dementia care is an important issue nationwide across the entire healthcare continuum, and more work is needed to ensure that all people with the disease and their families have access to the support that they need and deserve. That's it. And the good news is that much of that work is happening with contributions from a diverse community of stakeholders, including everybody on this call today. So to provide dementia care that is person-centered in all kinds of contexts. And that's really because person-centered care is seen as a way of improving dementia care outcomes by placing individuals with dementia and their caregivers in the center of, of care delivery. Thank you so much, Heather. I'm so happy also to, in, um, to introduce Colleen as she is with us today to share more of her expertise in the person-centered care as it relates to individuals that are living with dementia and their myriad of caregivers. So I have a quick question for Colleen. Can you tell us, Colleen, about person-centered care? Is this a new concept 
or is this something that we've been practicing for years? Well, it's not a new concept, Sue. And before I really discuss person-centered care, I want to talk about um, the concept of person-centered care. As we stated, it's really not a new concept. The practices and approaches, really, they maintain that focus on the individual served while considering balancing the life and needs of the family caregivers who support them. Within our home care community-based services, these individuals provide a great deal of care, as you've heard earlier. The families consider care planning approaches and practices across the lifespan of those individuals, such as balancing work and dealing with community inclusion and relationships and healthy living. So let's go ahead and discuss some elements of person-centered care. This is great, Colleen. I would love to hear more about the elements. Can you define that person-centered care as people travel through the stages of dementia? Well, in relation to person-centered care and dementia studies, interventions have had significant effects on decreasing behavioral symptoms and producing positive effects in addition to reducing psychotropic medications and that use of those medications with individuals living with dementia, not only in the community, but within the long-term care arena. However, the effects of person-centered care are described as individuals that we have to deal with things such as depression, sleep disturbances, and other psychosocial outcomes really can't be determined based on some of the current studies. With the definition, though, person-centered care means that individuals' values, preferences are elicited, once expressed, guide all aspects of their health, supporting realistic person-centered goals. Person-centered care is achieved through that relationships, and relationships are so important. Their relationships among individuals, their relationships that were important to them prior to the onset of dementia. With this collaboration, it informs that decision-making needs to be focused on that individual and not to discount that individual's ability to make decisions based on dementia. Essential elements to realizing this definition, of course, are individual goal-oriented plans based on that person living with dementia's personal preferences. We do this through a lot of different elements, such as medical, functional, so psychological, sociological assessments that provides a foundation for that individual's goals. Ongoing review of that person's goals and care plans are important for community-based services and, of course, individuals that receive these services within long-term care. Anyone living within, within the community and that are receiving care from a practitioner do have a plan of care. And that plan of care needs to be reassessed basic, based on that individual's abilities at that time, the overall effectiveness of the plan of care, and of course, to once again, assess their changes in their person's medical, functional, psychosocial, and social status. Another element is that we need care supported by an interprofessional team, which of that individual member is central to that team. The team has to be flexible and not have predisposed ideas. It is based on that person's health and their circumstances. 
it means that one plan of care doesn't fit all people living with dementia. But we as healthcare providers have a primary role. Having one care provider who serves as that point contact and involved with this care really provides an ease for communication and continuity within that community-based services and, of course, within organizations or facilities such as long-term care. Another element is active coordination, and the active coordination can be very challenging, especially if you have num a number of family members that are providing care. But consider this. Coordination, again, is, could be difficult amongst all different types of healthcare providers, but we must do that. We've got to ensure that coordination of care continues as seamlessly as possible, particularly when a person moves from one side of care to another, or really from one stage of this disease to another. Continued information gathering and sharing is an integral part of communication. Communication of information can be accomplished through many different mechanisms, such as that electronic health record, enhanced and careful listening, opening communications, and that communication between that individual living with dementia and the people providing care. Now, education is also extremely important. Education and training for providers is very, very important. And this includes identifying those principles of person-centered care. Our care providers need to understand and be committed and then make sure they recognize that each individual stage of dementia affects the person that they're caring for and integrating that person's autonomy is so important. Health education of people receiving the care is important also and that informed decision-making. Not only do we have these different elements, we also look at feedback and we also need to take a look at transitions between care settings. Now, individuals that are living in community-based services and are provided for care, as Heather mentioned, in the community for a longer duration of time, will also need to understand that their care and their care plan will be changing. So Colleen, can you tell us a little more about community and the role in person-centered care? Well, person-centered care is a holistic approach. We think of ourselves as a, as a whole person. It doesn't wane because we've got dementia. With this holistic approach to the planning process is that that individual, again, is central. That individual's desires must be heard, understood, respected, including their beliefs. Now, not all of the family members or caregivers may have the same beliefs that the individual they're caring for have, but we have choice and self-determinations. People make decisions about services and the supports to their own health, their own well-being, and their life goals. Community inclusion is so important. Please don't take that out of an individual living with dementia. People have to have support to be members of and treated as equal members of that community. Again, focus on that individual person living with dementia. Use that planning approach to ensure that their desires are heard and respected. Choice, as I said, and then that those individuals have services available to maintain them in the least restrictive environment. Our goal with person-centered care is to have those individuals, if at all possible, living in an environment that's familiar to them. 
as the disease progresses, moving an individual into a different care setting could cause a lot of anxiety and may result in the initiation of behavior-altering medications. So Colleen, can you tell us a little bit more about person-centered care? Well, simply know the person. Know the person living with dementia. If you, if they are in a community-based services, maybe they're in assisted living with dementia care, maybe they're in a long-term care agency or facility, or maybe they're even at home, you've got to know the person that's living with dementia. It's much, much more than a diagnosis. As Heather told us, there's different types of diseases that have dementia as a primary symptom, but we also have to know about that unique person and their beliefs and values their likes and dislikes, both past and present. People change and evolve. The information, of course, is to recognize and accept individuals. Recognize them and make sure that you understand that behavior may be a way to actually communicate. As people develop or their stages of dementia are going to progress, their ability to communicate and their ability to make their needs known is going to be more difficult. So recognize the behavior. In addition to this, identify and support ongoing opportunities for meaningful engagement. Now, they're probably not going to go play bridge at someone's home anymore when they've got dementia, but there are other things that they can do. The engagement has to be meaningful for the stage of dementia. Don't underestimate that ability to enjoy activities. It's got to support interest, but do something that's appropriate for the stage of dementia that they're experiencing. In addition, we've got to build relationships and nurture caring relationships. People living with dementia should be part of that relationship. This is a type of caring and it must be present, concentrating on those interactions daily. We think of individuals and sometimes caregivers think of individuals as performing a task, but that's not so. We want to do with that person, not do to them. And that's a phrase that you'll hear over and over again, do with that individual or that person living with dementia and make sure it's beneficial and mutually understood. Next, we need to be able to create and maintain supportive relationships. And I mentioned community, but don't take individuals out of their community, communities that are very familiar. They may have a community within their faith group. See what their values are and respect those individual preferences. Ongoing evaluation, ongoing identification, and make those changes to the plan of care that meet the resident's individual needs. Now, there are several, several tools available for person-centered care, and we're gonna continue to talk a little bit more about that, but it's important to regularly evaluate those practices and models and share findings. Join a support group. Anyone that is living in the community, caring for someone with dementia, make sure you find the appropriate support group. And those programs and practices that are applicable to your loved one that is living with dementia. So Colleen, can you give us some key strategies that are necessary for all caregivers when it comes to that person-centered care? Well, look, of course, to the past and present. Always look to that individual in what they would like to do and what they would seem to be able to do. Maintain that personhood. And as we know, it's very essential that that care provider 
understand the physical and psychosocial relationships with their needs. As Heather stated earlier, dementia is a terminal illness, and so is the ability to provide care for that individual. We know that this is a disease that there is no current cure. Well, thank you, Colleen, for sharing your expertise and some key operational steps, not only the importance of person-centered care, but also strategies on how to use the information for quality, how to include community, and the importance of valuing each individual. So now I would like to introduce Stephanie, who will provide us with some exceptional experience using best a best practice case example. Thanks so much. So as mentioned, I work for Comfort Care Home Care, which is a nationwide in-home care company. We are one of those community-based partners that is dedicated to supporting those living with dementia. And early on in the formation of our company, we quickly realized that the number one need that drives most older adults and their families to our services is because of a dementia diagnosis. And through that experience, we also learned that a lot of our family caregivers that Heather's mentioned that is providing primary care don't necessarily have the strategies and tools to create this meaningful experience that really does help that individual living with dementia experience some of these, these examples of person-centered care, like selfhood, still finding meaning and purpose. And so at the inception of our company, we realized that we needed a good quality dementia care program that helped us incorporate all of these principles that we've been talking about that can really help the individual living with dementia still experience a life that's worth living. And so through our journey of uh, the evolution of our company, we quickly identified that there were two ways in which we could help achieve some of these goals in the home, which is through a good quality dementia care training program. And at that time, we had to make a decision whether we wanted to purchase an off-the-shelf program, meaning something that is available for purchase that could be easily implemented across all teams or develop our own. And so when we first started our research, we knew that we wanted to first identify, well, what would the goals of our program be? And I think this is really important, even for those that are here on the call with us today, is you are working in multiple settings and you may even have access to a dementia care training program now. And much like you, we had access to those types of tools as well, but they weren't necessarily translating to the exact environment in which we were providing care in, which was the home. So what we decided to do was go to what we would consider best practice in establishing what we would call care practice recommendations, which has been established by the Alzheimer's Association. And so through the Alzheimer's Association, they actually outline what some of these best practices look like for good quality dementia care in the home. And so we as an organization decided that at that time with those best practices, that it was really in our best interest to develop our own program to help support not only our caregiving teams who's providing the care to the individual living with dementia, but knowing that our program also needed to translate to the community and most importantly, the family members as well. So when we look at dementia care training programs, we have to understand, first of all, as we've been really talking about, that person-centered dementia care is vital in the foundational aspect of the program. But most importantly, not only is it important that we define those elements 
and also talk about the disease and the stages associated with the progression of dementia, is that we also translate that information into practice. And when we do that, this is where we truly believe and we've been able to experience the impact of a good quality training program to those that are actually living with dementia. So I just want to highlight a little bit about DementiaWise and sort of what the purpose and the primary objectives of our program is and how we've been able to achieve them. So with DementiaWise, first of all, we have four specific goals that we decided that were really important in designing a good quality person-centered program. The first is our program needed to have and does have a way in which our caregivers, our direct care caregiving teams can make a meaningful connection. We know that when an individual needs to maintain selfhood, they need to be recognized, they need to be respected and trusted. These are really important elements to understand as a direct care worker so that we can have a better acceptance of care. We can create better days. When we're having a hard time sometimes getting in the home or completing a task, using these sort of elements helps us become much more successful in that approach. The second aspect of our program is building trust. And it's, it's a lot more difficult sometimes to incorporate those types of values into a training program that actually translate into an impact where a caregiver can actually build more trust with a client living with dementia. But I can tell you it's an important element and one in which that really helps us be successful in making those connections with our clients that actually translate to longer care in the home. The third element is finding meaningful activities that also match remaining abilities. When we look at a good quality dementia program that is person-centered, it was mentioned that relying on those remaining abilities is so important. I can tell you that's one of the key elements to the Alzheimer's Association best care practice recommendations is recognizing that there's not only areas lost, but areas preserved. When caregiving teams and families recognize that, this becomes a really important tool that we can leverage to build those connections, build that tr trust, and as a result, helping that person achieve selfhood. The fourth aspect is promoting a positive environment for clients. As a home care provider, we have to rely on non-pharmacological options and approaches to care. We cannot prescribe or provide medications. So what our tools in our toolbox heavily rely on on behavioral and environmental interventions. All of these things are very important to consider when building your own program. Now, the other aspect, and we touched on this as well, is being able to continue to evaluate and also equipping and providing teams tools with how they can actually identify whether something is working or not. One of the tools that we like incorporating is helping caregivers understand how to be ready to flex. We actually incorporate that as an actual tool to help that individual identify that as an individual's needs are changing, how do you remain flexible in that environment to actually support them with where they're at? This is very important because as care plans are initially established or designed in the home care environment, they often change frequently when providing care to an individual with dementia. Because of that, we have to not only take our clinical knowledge, but this practical experience and educate and empower our teams so that they can work alongside these families and individuals living with dementia so they can have a better care experience. 
So that is in summary, a little bit of what our program Dementialize looks like. Now, when it comes to designing the program, it really starts with that. And I like to recommend if you don't have one already and you're considering creating your own, look at a best practice recommendation. I do like recommending the Alzheimer's Association. That's where we went. But the other aspect to that is balancing. How are you going to implement it from an operational perspective? So it's one aspect to outline your key learning objectives and what your goals of care may be and what all these other elements might look like. But you need to also consider how it can get into the hands of those that need it the most. So I can tell you from our program's perspective, that was at the forefront is keeping um, the information accessible uh, to individuals and for an ease of implementation, especially when looking at the size and scale of an organization like Comfort Care. So what we decided to do was not only script out our program, um, but we've also designed uh, professionally edited and designed video modules that are easily accessible through our learning management system. Now, again, because we designed our own, it's based in the home care environment, which speaks directly to our direct care workers, which is really where the connection is made. If you have a training program that is in an environment like in a hospital setting, for example, but for a direct care worker in a home care environment, you may not find the same impact as those that are actually seeing themselves in a training video in the same environment. I think that's really important. The other aspect, as I mentioned, is really focusing on those areas lost, preserved, and also looking at a way in which you can continue to collaborate. When we're thinking about community-based practice and supporting those living in their home, those needs continuously change. It's our direct care worker that's helping to support that client and their family. We wanna empower those individuals to understand how we can continue to collaborate so that as we need to continue to be flexible and continue to evaluate and address our care plan, um, so that is just a little bit of information in regards to our dementia care training program to give some examples in regards to how we've decided to approach this. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie. Uh, Heather, I know you were also involved in the program development process for Dementialize. Can you give us a brief information on your prog program design as well? Sure. I really have to commend comfort care leaders uh, across the U.S. and Canada for noticing a whole lot about traditional dementia care training programs and actually designing a more effective program. I mean, this is just what I call expert noticing. Um, Comfort Care asked a really important question as Stephanie was uh, speaking about what makes an effective dementia care training program? I mean, they realized that surely it would involve knowledge and skills about person-centered dementia care but it couldn't just be facts and techniques. There needed to be some program design features that helped these care teams translate their knowledge into practice to actually improve life for clients and, and themselves. Experts in the field agree that an essential design flaw in traditional training could contribute to that knowledge to practice gap that's pretty well known. See, they see that teams actually lack opportunities to plan and test and evaluate and reflect as a whole team on the process of adapting their responses to real world challenges. So I just say that Comfort Care kind of boldly stepped just right up to the cutting edge of dementia workforce training when they developed Dementia Wise with a knowledge transfer framework. 
which actually targets their team's dynamic process of collaboratively applying their knowledge in practice and actually resolving real world challenges um, together. I invite folks on the call today to read our white paper to learn a little bit more about what distinguishes dementia-wise. Stephanie might be able to throw it up in the, in the chat. I noticed that it's a little bit um, above in the chat already. That's a link to our study. No need to pull it up right now, but you'll have it in the handout too when you receive that you receive after our program. Or you can just always Google dementia-wise study. But in a nutshell, the new program doesn't just deliver a lecture of information and person-centered care strategies. Instead, dementia-wise, learners actually gain a process for collaboratively collaborative problem solving, reasoning, and reflection on their on their own experiences. That sounds informative, thought-provoking, and really entertaining at the same time. With such a cutting-edge program, I'm curious about the impact of DementiaWise. Did the training make a difference for those home care teams? Ooh, impact, yes. Great question. In, in addition to explaining disease-specific content and practical caregiving skills, the video really depicts frontline caregivers working as a team. See, in the, in the training, that team encounters common dementia-related challenges in home care, and they translate their collective knowledge into that care environment. So as learners uh, hear about a clinical case, from the perspective of home care workers, they actually, the camera follows, they actually watch the team investigate the potential root causes of the problem in their case. Then the team plans a person-centered intervention using dementia-wise strategies tailored to their case, and then they implement their plan in the client's home. So learners actually watch the caregiver return to her team for ongoing problem solving because all the experienced folks on the call today will know we got to do this all the time. We go back and forth to our team for problem solving because these challenges don't just magically go by the book. But in this video, the team's shared challenges actually help to structure the content and it merges a lot of the, the knowledge of the client, the disease, the environment, evidence-based strategies and their work situation. Putting all of that together um, into person-centered solutions. So in this way, just real stories from home care illustrate solutions that are more realistic and fueled by knowledge of person-centered dementia care along with a little creativity and lots of teamwork. After all that effort in the design phase and a beautifully uh, coordinated rollout, thanks to Comfort Care across US and Canada, I mean, we were all chomping at the bit uh, for a little bit more evaluation about the impact. So we did a program evaluation study in 2022, just last year. The study was a collaboration with uh, student and faculty researchers at Duke University Occupational Therapy Doctorate Program and my consulting company, Partnerships for Health. Looking at the program's impact from the point of view of home care teams, the researchers surveyed home care workers about their self-efficacy and job satisfaction. So we were really wondering if the training could change home care workers' self-efficacy and job satisfaction, but let me say a little bit more about those variables. 
because I want to make sure that folks on the call understand what those terms self-efficacy and job satisfaction meant in our study. Let me start with the first one. Self-efficacy is basically how confident you feel about doing the job. Okay, in this case, we wanted to know if the training actually helped those home care workers do their job and resolve real world care challenges. For job satisfaction, the, the other variable, we wanted to know, did this training actually relieve some of the stress of this work and protect home care workers from burnout? Remember, we need these frontline workers to be well and resilient more now than ever. So any training that boosts job satisfaction and team retention is like so key. But let me give you a little spoiler alert. The study found that home care workers who completed dementia-wise training felt better equipped and empowered to collaboratively care for clients living with dementia and their families. So self-efficacy went up. They felt better about doing the job and so did the job satisfaction. The job satisfaction compared to teammates who had not yet completed um, dementia-wise also was improved. So it might interest you to look a little closer at the visual depiction of those results. Okay, first of all, we called the caregivers who had completed dementia-wise training our cases, and they're the orange bar in that first picture. Employees who had not yet completed the training were our controls, so they're the blue bar. You can see dementia-wise training was positively associated with higher self-efficacy among those home care team members at Comfort Care as the odds of higher self-efficacy in those watch dementia-wise was 1.6 times the odds of higher self-efficacy in the other group. So the orange bar exceeded the blue bar. Check out that second picture though. This is kind of interesting. You notice we got three bars here. Blue is still our controls. Orange, still our employees who completed the training. And gray is a bunch of caregivers who decided on their own that dementia-wise was the gift that kept on giving. <laughs> they decided to watch the film more than once. Well, those who refreshed their training annually or semi-annually felt the most capable of applying dementia care strategies and collaborative problem solving, which it suggested to us that dementia-wise has a long-range benefit for these teams. Specifically, those, those folks who re-watched, they felt even more confident to identify potential root causes of dementia care-related challenges in home care. They felt even more confident to use the 12 tools of dementia-wise to help with dementia-related challenges. So like they feel really good about applying their knowledge in practice. And they even feel more ready to suggest or try a different care strategy if the first attempt at resolving their problem was unsuccessful. So boy, they are really engaged in this collaborative ongoing problem solving that is a real hallmark of person-centered dementia care. So hats off to those, those amazing teammates. Wow, thank you, Heather, for bringing us the overview of your research in collaboration with Duke University and the International Home Care Agency, Comfort Care. It really is exciting to see new evidence-based training approaches that will help caregivers implement person-centered care in practice. 
So we're nearing the end of our program now, and I'm curious what each of you would highlight as key takeaways or best practice considerations for those of us on the call who want to enhance person-centered care in different work contexts. So next, Colleen, can you fill us in on what we should all keep in mind about person-centered care in any dementia care role or workplace? Well, absolutely. Um, what we need to take a look at is that ability to continuously get to know that individual. As dementia progresses, so does that ability of the brain to process information. Oftentimes, what I see is individual family caregivers or caregivers in a home-based care community setting, such as assisted living, believing that the individual living with dementia understands your instructions the same way they did two months ago, one year ago. But we have to continuously understand this. The brain is not functioning at that same level. So with this, we know the person, we know the relationships, and we understand that change is inevitable. We always must continue to respect that individual and the care providers and tailor their needs based on their unique sets of abilities at that time. As I often see, when dementia progresses, we know that language is on the left side of the brain and safety is on the right. And people living with dementia, most often their language and their ability to understand you will diminish and so will the ability to identify safe practices. So we've got to recognize those unique needs. We also have to recognize each experience as an opportunity for meaningful, meaningful engagement and then offer guidance. Offer guidance with that individual that's providing care and those care partners so we can empower them to understand this disease process and then prepare for the future. Well, thank you, Colleen. Those are great strategies to advance person-centered dementia care in any context. So Stephanie and Heather, what should we keep in mind in terms of best practice considerations and workforce training to advance best person-centered dementia care? Sure. So I'll share just a few. Um, so as I've mentioned, I think going to the Alzheimer's Association and seeing what they recommend and outline is a great place to start if you're considering to build your own program. They provide great structure and suggestions to consider, and we truly do consider them to be the gold standard in person-centered dementia care. I also think it's really important, as mentioned, that you just don't do a data dump and you really provide the caregivers, specifically in the home care environment, an ability to transfer that knowledge. And that could be for any healthcare professional, regardless of environment. Giving that context and providing them the tools to assess what are those remaining abilities? How are other abilities changing? Um, how can we provide the right tools to help our, our caregiving teams to get to know that person? So not only is it important to include the training, the transfer, but also the tools. And being able to target the whole team along the context of your training program is so important when it comes to building a good quality training program that's going to speak to your teams. The other thing I want to mention, and then I'll let Heather chime in here too, is really looking at ease of implementation. If you're someone like me in more of an operational role in looking at goals and metrics and seeing how many people are watching, you know, or engaging in the program. Heather mentioned we have some folks that have gone back to it twice. Those are obviously great indicators that your program's working. 
So along the way, you want to consider how easy is it for folks to get um, access to the information, but to continue to track and trend, what is the engagement levels like? And I'll be honest, when we initially designed our program, the engagement wasn't there. And when we started working with Heather, that was an important element. And now we see that our program has really skyrocketed within our own teams. So don't be afraid to adjust your program along the way to meet the, the needs of your teams. And the last point I'm going to make is the frequent check-ins. We know that as the disease progresses, that teams need the ability to collaborate. We know in healthcare, it's important to provide good communication, training, recognition, and reward. The training and communication point is really critical when it comes to good patient-centered care and should be an integrated factor into your training program and then also have ways that you can continue to collaborate and reinforce what you've taught in that initial training program to ensure that those teams feel supported. Heather? Yeah, I would just add to that too that I think one of the strengths of the dementia-wise training is that it depicted caregiving in the context that was most relevant um, for our participants. So consider that, um, those folks who are on the call working in other contexts. Also, you, the, the use of these challenging cases really helped to situate real-world problem solving and bring those care teams' knowledge um, from the training into the real world, as well as adding knowledge and skills just in time for them to apply it in the context of their case. The last thing I would say is, as Colleen mentioned today, any training um, that you're thinking about really needs to highlight communication, collaboration, and cooperation because dementia care takes a team. So find your team and uh, consider some of these uh, uh, pro tips in developing your training. Thank you all again. You have mentioned additional resources that you have found helpful as you were talking today. Um, would you like to also tell us a little bit more about these resources listed? Sure, the Alzheimer's Association um, Facts and Figures is a, a, a publication put out annually by the Alzheimer's Association. You guys are probably familiar with that, but that helps you stay up to speed with the whole landscape of dementia and, and dementia caregiving. Um, I'll say a couple things about some of these others. The Alzheimer's Foundation of America, if y'all aren't familiar with that, it's also a fantastic uh, uh, resource for caregiver education as well as uh, information for people living with the disease. A couple other uh, nonprofit organizations are on the list, provide an array of dementia care supports and education. Dementia Action Alliance is a Virginia-based nonprofit. Um, I really appreciate their person-centered philosophy, and a lot of their educational programs are made in partnership with people living with dementia or caregivers from marginalized communities. And I just really commend their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion in their work. Um, the Snow Approach Foundation is a North Carolina-based nonprofit led by renowned dementia care expert, Tipa Snow. And I got to say, in full disclosure, Tipa and I are longtime OT colleagues and neighbors. <laughs> so I serve on the board of the directors um, for that foundation here in my hometown. Feel free to uh, check out the Snow Approach Foundation or follow Tipa on social media. You'll get uh, a lot of programs happening nationwide. My company, Partnerships for Health, is there. I also included the NIA Impact Collaboratory for those of you who like to follow or participate in dementia-related research. We do have one question that I will pose to the group from one of our attendees. 
And the question is, there is a distinct transformation of the person as dementia expresses itself. Outlook, opinions, emotions, and expressions are in flux and cannot be relied upon when they could be before. How can we take their lead when they are shifting, even erratically, as we interact with them? Would one of you like to take that question? I didn't start. I'm sure there's others here that may want to chime in as well. But I think, first of all, it starts with the education and training that you need to provide your teams in regards to how you may define stages. This is the approach we take. So we do take the Alzheimer's Association best practice, and we look at dementia as being three stages. So within those stages, we do train and teach to those assumed remaining abilities, some of the challenged areas to kind of give a framework for folks to at least begin working within. Obviously, I always like to say, you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. However, there are some guides you can follow to assist through that way. I think the other aspect is providing those tools, not only in terms of how to evaluate actual needs, but also the tools you provide the caregiving teams to help them take their lead. So tools actually, to me, are two buckets. There's a clinical tool, and then there's the caregiving tool as well that they need to help them remain flexible. And so we actually empower our caregiving teams to understand that they can adjust. We provide examples of how to adjust an activity, and then we promote what we've been saying all the way through, which is collaboration. We don't want anyone doing one thing alone. And so we do instruct teams from day one that as soon as you identify that a change has occurred in any way to try your best, try your tools and let us know. And we will work together to collaborate through a very specific methodology that allows us to help create those better days. That's what I'd like to share. Anything else? I do have a comment. Thank you very much, Stephanie and Heather. One of the things, and as um, Heather mentioned, she's a very good friend of Tipa Snows, but one of the things within that program is really focusing on how the brain changes. So you know your brain, and, I, and when I lecture or I instruct people, let's go put a grape out on the picnic table, and when it gets all dried out, it looks like a raisin, and that's what the brain's going to do. One of the things I find with caregivers and how they sometimes will elicit negative behavior is they don't understand the visual changes that happen within that older adult living with Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Now, during the stages, and you mentioned the stages related to the facts and figures and the identification within the Alzheimer's Association, but the vision is going to change. So what you see at early onset Alzheimer's and their visual and their ability to understand communication are markedly, markedly, probably down to 15% of what their normal base would be without the disease at the end stages. So when you go ahead and you talk about training and understanding, people under have to understand that brain because with that's where it attacks. That's that ongoing struggle that we have making sure our care providers are able to interpret the stage and where their brain is. And it's not, it's going to be a, a constant a decline that may someday, sometimes not go very quickly. And then all of a sudden they have had a marked decline in their functional status and of course, how their brain is able to process information. Thank you, Heather, Colleen, and Stephanie for sharing your insights and providing strategies for implementing person-centered dementia care. 
Listeners, visit ComfortConnections.com to download complimentary resources, view show notes, and access our episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app. Thank you for listening and helping older adults live the best life possible.